marketplaces already have usually a very large user base. So the distribution of financial products is changing from banks to uh, fintechs and uh, marketplaces. It's basically a completely new way of accessing financial services at the time of the sale, when you need them the most, and when you need to make a decision. It's really revolutionizing the user experience. And uh, what we're going to see in the coming years is really exciting. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host, Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hi, everyone. Uh, just a quick intro for today's conversation uh, with Ivan Draganov. Ivan is leading uh, Dear Room's uh, co-intelligence uh, effort on online marketplaces and is one of the key people behind the amazing reports, the dashboards that Dear Room has been providing recently in combination with Advent Ventures and Speed Invest. Uh, Ivan also runs this great uh, marketplace newsletter that uh, um, DRoom has. You will find details in the, in the show notes. Uh, previously, Ivan worked on the development of data-driven investment tools, equity research of internet stocks at uh, banking institutions. And Ivan has a background in econometrics and financial economics. And this is clearly visible in his work in, in reporting you know, the, the latest development of the marketplace industry. Indeed, uh, in today's conversation, which, by the way, I'm co-hosting with uh, Manfredi Sassoli, that uh, you may probably know because uh, he was uh, uh, co-hosting with me so many webinars recently uh, with regards to our research on growth that you can find on our website and, and more generally on our blog. Uh, again, links in the podcast notes. Uh, so we had this conversation with Mafredi, with Ivan, and uh, we explored uh, the role of finance in reducing frictions in marketplaces. This is one of the highlights of the research uh, recently in, at DRoom. Uh, indeed, they also released a recent report on fintech and marketplaces. Very interesting comments on uh, around the role of finance, especially ranging from you know how finance can uh, uh, fintech can allow marketplaces to you know keep up with some great uh, innovations such as uh, early payouts or you know escrow or insurance or some uh, some of the things that essentially reduce the friction in marketplaces and really help marketplaces on one side to grow and. Um, Uh, financial providers to distribute uh, uh, fintech services uh, in a new way, in new ways. So essentially, on one side, you know, we're looking into marketplaces using fintech as a way to grow faster. And on the other side, we're looking into financial institutions, into looking into marketplaces as a distribution channel. And this integration be- between the two is, is essentially the highlight of this conversation. Uh, towards the end of the conversation, we also look into what's happening Uh, in the future, most importantly, uh, coming up uh, a report from D-Room, uh, even 
tells us a little bit more of his, his work on B2B and how same patterns, let's say, are you know coming up to the B2B space. But also we look into consumer in you know changing expectations, uh, industry expectations, uh, and how COVID and other elements such as climate change or ecological breakdown are driving new expectations in terms of customers and, and industry possibilities. So I really encourage you to catch up with this great conversation with Ivan, very practical, uh, very interesting, I believe, for founders, but more in general for anybody that's interested on what's going on in, in this space. So enjoy this um, episode and find the uh, transcript at uh, boundaryless.io slash podcast slash Ivan. Hello, everyone. We are back at the Boundless Conversations podcast uh, today with a special co-host. Uh, with me, there is not uh, the usual co-host, Stina, but uh, instead we have here today Manfredi Sassoli. Manfredi, ciao. Great to have you here. Hi, Simone. Great to be here. As you may remember, Manfredi was uh, with uh, me and other uh, from the Boundless team doing the growth guide research that you have enjoyed in the last few months. And so I'm really looking forward to have Manfredi's insights uh, in this podcast. This podcast, which features another very special guest, Ivan Draganov from Dear Room. Ciao, Ivan. Great to have you. Hi, Simon. Hi, Manfredi. Thanks for having me. Great. Uh, great. Ivan is uh, the lead author of uh, the fantastic uh, reports of marketplaces from uh, Dear Room. So, Ivan, let's start from there. How do you describe the work that you do at Dear Room, uh, the work of a marketplace analyst? Um, that's a great question. So, I am part of the intelligence unit of Dear Room, uh, which is a startup database and intelligence platform. And uh, on a daily basis, uh, I'm responsible for reviewing uh, and analyzing investment data, uh, talking to founders, investors, and figuring out what's happening right now in marketplaces and consumer tech more generally, and uh, figure out what would happen next and create insights, crunch some numbers, and, and create reports, but also send a weekly newsletter with uh, some of the key highlights that readers should be aware of. Great. So can you can you maybe uh, give us a bit of context of what you have seen happening uh, and uh, chronicled in these uh, reports that you wrote on, on marketplaces in the last couple of years at least, and uh, uh, maybe contextualize a bit the most recent marketplace uh, report on fintech. Uh, that, that I think that would be a, a great starting point for our listeners. Uh, so for the last, since 2018, we've partnered with uh, Adivinta Ventures and Speed Invest to work on a, on a couple of reports to give a little bit of context of where we're at right now with, in the evolution of marketplaces. So it all started with so-called supply aggregators like Bricklist and eBay uh, in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, and later on in the early 2000s, um, we've seen the emergence of vertical specialists uh, like AutoTrader or Trulia. Uh, for real estate. Uh, later on in 2015 to 2010, uh, marketplaces become increasingly more transactional. Um, examples of that uh, is Airbnb or uh, Delivery Hero. Uh, and later on, consumers demanded to receive certain services on demand. And we saw the emergence of marketplaces like Uber uh, and Deliveroo. And later on, to further improve the the user experience and capture even more of the transaction, uh, marketplaces become to increasingly manage either the supply or the demand 
And we've seen uh, the emergence of marketplaces like AutoTrader, uh, Kazoo, uh, and Goat in the last couple of years to further improve the user experience, capture more value, and remove friction. Uh, marketplaces started to increasingly bet uh, various financial products to either expand the throttable addressable markets, create recurring revenue streams, lower the customer acquisition costs, but also improve the unit economics and reduce friction at order. Right, right. And and finance, to some extent, fintech, it's um, kind of in the same direction. How can I say? It's in the same uh, story. No, it's, uh, it's about essentially as marketplaces become more managed uh, and take over more of the experience, uh, we have discovered that finance and fintech have such a great importance. So can you maybe help us go through these uh, six key elements that you highlight on the report uh, when it comes to the role of fintech in, in enabling marketplace growth? So for example, you, you mentioned these six points, insurance, escrow, financing, loans, payments, and payroll. I'm curious if you can, you know, maybe even if you don't want to go through the, all the details, maybe you can help our readers to really figure out why this is important, why fintech uh, enablement is critical now to understand really where marketplaces are heading. Yeah. So financial services could be added at different stages of the, of the user journey. And marketplace operators could either hold the risk on their own balance sheet, our so-called asset-heavy approach, or partner with third parties, or so-called asset-light approach. Let me, let me give you an example. For example, at the very beginning of the user journey, when uh, the consumer is figuring out how to finance or how to buy a particular product, marketplaces can embed uh, either loans or, or other types of uh, financing like income sharing agreements. Uh, so in order to increase the liquidity on the demand side, uh, remove friction uh, in the ordering process and also add additional revenues for the marketplace operator. Uh, I think a good example is Zillow and uh, Zillow acquired Mortgage Lenders of America. They embedded this service into their offering. So they basically streamlined uh, the home buying process. And before you would first look for a house and then you have to look for, for loans, compare different loans and mortgages, then wait to be approved, etc. And what Zillow did, they integrated that so that uh, there was a seamless user experience and it was much faster and more convenient. You could also add a financial service later uh, when the payment is being made, so at the bank process. And we've seen uh, marketplaces also embed payment options. And for certain marketplaces, that is crucial to do business. Uh, for example, uh, Booking. They introduced the payment service uh, five or six months ago. And until, until that, a lot of international travelers might not have been able to actually book uh, certain properties because their preferred payment options weren't available at the particular country. Uh, to give you an example, in the Netherlands, it's very common to use IDEO. Uh, but if I travel elsewhere in Germany, I'm not able to use that payment option. And then there is certain friction if I want to book a certain property or I have to use a, a visa or other payment option. So Booking identified this problem and they introduced their own payment service in order to be able to manage different currencies and different payment methods. And as marketplaces and enterprises uh, scale globally, payments tend to encounter challenges uh, in different geographies because of currencies, regulations and technologies. 
Uber is another example as they were scaling in Europe in certain countries they use euro but if you go to the uh, to the east they use different currencies for example in Bulgaria they use Bulgarian lev and if you go to Asia they they use different currencies so it was a challenge first can you accept cash and then if you accept this cash how can you uh, convert it to another currency so Uber also started to work on their own payment system in order to facilitate the growth of their marketplace. Uh, but there could also be an asset light approach. Uh, so basically you can partner with another company and uh, there is a company uh, that comes to mind, uh, Neum. And uh, basically they're helping you to integrate different payment services within the marketplace offering. The difference between the two is that in the first case of uh, Uber and Booking, Uh, you must have uh, your own fintech units and programmers and uh, you know uh, pay salaries and whatnot and in the second approach you partner with with another company on a revenue sharing scream or uh, subscription but also when it comes to the transaction in high value items uh, especially uh, escrow uh, plays an important role for example in the home buying process you would need anywhere between two weeks to four weeks um before the transaction can close uh, and at this time uh, no matter how you choose to buy a home uh, your closing cost would be between 2 and 5% so you would basically need uh, like a third party to hold the money until uh, uh, the procedure is being closed and it takes time there, there is more friction uh, and the user experience more importantly is not so nice so what open door uh, the us based open door did is they acquired a company by the name OS National, uh, which is a, a US-based title and escrow company. Through this acquisition, they embedded, uh, integrated their services into the online buying and selling experience. And that enabled the company to build a uh, most streamlined and easiest uh, closing experience. eBay is, uh, is another example. Uh, they partner with the company escrow.com. Uh, to help facilitate all payments on um, especially watches uh, that are more expensive than uh, 10,000 uh, US dollars towards the end of the consumer journey so post transaction uh, there could still be embedded various financial services in order to create uh, additional revenue streams and longer relationship uh, one example is insurance and insurance is actually not a really new and novel concept because Airbnb introduced host guarantee uh, back in 2011. So what they realized is that if the property is being damaged, a certain uh, so the supply side, which is the owners, might get a little bit scared and they they might not be willing to supply Airbnb with their homes. So in order to increase the supply and uh, make sure that, that there is enough homes and enough people willing to Uh, register on Airbnb they introduced the host guarantee in 2011 and then uh, in 2012 uh, 14 uh, they introduced additional liability insurance so in, in this way uh, Airbnb is having more supply and the, the marketplace uh, becomes more liquid but more recently Kazoo uh, which is a used and new car marketplace based in UK uh, they bundle insurance into, into the buying process so before you would first have to look for a car figure out the price of the car of the vehicle uh, then go and find an insurance company uh, negotiate with them the price for how much would it cost you monthly and yearly to insure uh, the car what Kazoo does and other companies like BP uh, they they bundle it so then as a consumer you just go on one platform 
and you can buy a car, get an insurance and uh, be ready to go. And we've even seen uh, companies uh, like uh, Lovis, which can actually bundle multiple insurance policies in one. Uh, For example, housing, car, smartphone, even mortgage insurance. So they they bundle it into one policy. As a consumer, uh, there is one-stop shop to go and, and, and find whatever is relevant. An additional financial service that we've seen uh, gets embedded is payroll. It's especially relevant for marketplaces where either the supply or the demand require uh, funds to be transferred uh, more quickly. A good example is Fiverr. Uh, Last year, they introduced the early payout option. So basically, the way it works is you would need 7 to 14 days uh, for funds to be transacted as a freelancer after you finish the job. But with the new, uh, with the new feature, early payout, uh, you're able to take funds immediately and Fiverr uh, charges on average uh, 1%. Uber is also another example. So drivers, they, they require to get funds uh, more quickly. Uh, so because Uber is facilitating payments and they also introduced uh, a bank card, they're also able to move payroll uh, from uh, the supply to the demand side. So from the rider to the driver, much seamless experience, much faster. And this creates, uh, so drivers are willing to subscribe on Uber and stick with Uber just because the supply side becomes more sticky uh, in a way, just because of this convenience to have funds available faster. And and also we've seen uh, the emergence of companies that help marketplaces and other companies to embed uh, payroll. A good example is Gusto or Check. So yeah, those are some examples of how financial services could be embedded of marketplace and, and benefits. I mean, that's great. That was really a great overview and uh, I'm, I'm very valuable, I think, for our listeners. And it makes me think of uh, recently uh, an interview with Alex uh, Rampea that I've uh, been listening to on, on Colossus uh, with uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, where uh, he was also making this point that uh, uh, these fin- embedded financial products are uh, a very great way to essentially on the side of the financial players to be able to provide more products with much less risk because uh, the data that the marketplace can produce around the recipient of this financial, uh, I would say, you know, for example, credit, let's say, uh, it's, it's, it's so, so, I would say, so complete, so, so informative that uh, for the financial player is much less risky no? to provide credit, for example, to one person that... Uh, of which, for example, of whom, for example, they could, uh, they know uh, a long transactional history, you know? so they know, for example, how much they make and, and, and things like that. Exactly. And more importantly, marketplaces already have usually a very large user base. So the distribution of financial products is changing from banks to uh, fintechs and uh, marketplaces. It's basically a completely new way of, of accessing financial services at the time of the sale, when you need them the most, and when you need to make a decision. It's really revolutionizing the user experience. And uh, what we're going to see in the coming years is really exciting. And if you can, if you can, before I leave it to Manfredi with some from, of your questions on his side, if you can mention something particularly clever that uh, you have seen happen. You know, for, because, for example, if I think about the most uh, traditional, let's say, 
uh, I don't know if I if I think about, for example, the most traditional use case of uh, embedded finance, and I'm tempted to think of, for example, uh, the mechanism for which you know these uh, real estate marketplaces have been buying homes instead of the uh, or you know before putting them in the hands of the consumers, and also taking this risk of uh, owning the inventory, you know, in the process, uh, which in, in the last couple of weeks uh, has came up with. Uh, uh, I would say, with the news of, uh, for example, Zillow having to deactivate the high buying uh, feature because they couldn't sell the homes at the right price. You know? so, they, so what I'm saying here is some of these patterns are very risky. Some others may be much more clever. And I, I, when we're reading the report, I was uh, reading about this idea of price freeze you know, that, uh, uh, that was super interesting. And uh, I would like to ask you maybe what kind of... Uh, very clever mechanisms uh, you have been witnessing, maybe some of the things that uh, that you want to highlight for our listeners in terms of, uh, you know, this is really crazy, uh, interesting and new. What are these emerging clever ways of embedding finance into products that you maybe you want to mention as, a, as a spe- specifically interesting? Yeah, just to give a little bit of context. Uh, so the price freeze is about a company named Hopper. So Hopper was founded in 2008 and it started as a travel search product. So as a somebody who's looking uh, for a flight, for example, I can go at Hopper and, and try to find different flights. Uh, but since 2018, Hopper started to introduce financial products, which is the price freeze. And actually that product, it accounts now for 30% of total transactions on Hopper. And also the... Uh, the revenues of Hopper grew 100% in 2020 year over year. And basically Hopper for the last couple of years has been transitioning to uh, to a financial services company. So instead of partnering with, uh, with third parties, they want to hold the risk on their balance sheet. And they actually also started a Hopper Cloud, uh, which is a B2B offering of its machine learning algorithm uh, to other uh, travel companies. This is a great example of a company that was a marketplace and is moving towards uh, financial services. What I found uh, quite interesting is that in especially emerging markets, because there is a large population that is being unbanked, uh, for example, in Southeast Asia, around 50% of consumers are unbanked, another 20% are underbanked, and still there is a lot of cash being used. There, there are startups uh, like Gojek, Grab, Flipkart, uh, to name a few in, in Southeast Asia, but also Mercado Libre in Latin America, Jumia in Africa, uh, which are actually introducing different financial services uh, in order to include uh, those people, in order to basically uh, financially include a lot of people. So, for example, Mercado Libre, they, uh, in, in Latin America, they started with Mercado Pago with a payment system. Later on, they developed a financing system, uh, Mercado Credo. Uh, but now they are also uh, creating a software to help uh, offline businesses go online, which is called uh, Mercado Shops. And why that is interesting is because uh, w- once you start going, they basically create a whole ecosystem and they also license uh, Mercado Libre. They also license uh, their payment system to third-party uh, marketplaces so they can start and accumulating a vast amount of data. So basically over time, they're being able to better understand 
people within their ecosystem, what they order, how much they earn, etc. And when they help uh, shops go from offline to online, they also offer additional financial services, for example, invoicing or accounting. In addition to that, you can then uh, f- finance uh, their inventory and whatnot. And in, in, in this way, first, uh, consumers are included because you can facilitate transactions, but also businesses are being brought online and creating new revenue streams for them. In most of the categories, we are still at a single digit or lower double digit online penetration. And if such financial services are being embedded and more people are being included, I think in the coming years, we would see an explosive growth of online marketplaces and, and the, the, the volume of transactions that they carry. Well, thank you for the info. Um, I have a question. So when we look at um, kind of labor marketplace, particularly around the gig economy, right? So think Uber Eats, Deliveroo and the likes. There's, of course, a lot of kind of discussions about how to regulate these and whether these marketplaces should hire uh, the workers on the supply side or not. And I was wondering if you've seen kind of financial products to manage that aspect of things. So, for example, you know, for these individuals, often products like credit, insurance, pensions are problematic. And as a consequence, then building these marketplaces become and managing them becomes problematic for the marketplace maker. That, that's a great question. And actually, we've already seen uh, that there, there are certain companies that want to address that. So they, they are developing insurance products uh, on the go and on demand, especially for uh, gig economy workers. So imagine you're Uber driver and basically you need insurance while you're driving. Uh, so there are companies that give you insurance on demand, but there, is, there are also companies that would give you healthcare insurance uh, on demand. I think a great example of that is uh, the San Francisco-based uh, Stride Health. And actually, they secured uh, $47 million last year. And uh, I know they've partnered with, with Uber, DoorDash, GoPuff, Instacart uh, to provide portable benefits uh, to their independent workers. Interesting. So basically, we've seen like two things. So on one hand, marketplace is creating their own products, but also new kind of fintech solutions that have come to exist basically to facilitate marketplaces. A bit like, I guess, you know, we saw 15 years ago, Skype kind of helping uh, eBay. Uh, That's precisely right. And again, at the end of the day, if you want to develop a fintech solution in-house, you really need to hire certain people and the DNA of the founders should be that they understand how financial products work and how they function and also what the type of talent you want to hire. So that's one way to go. The alternative is to basically find plug-and-play solutions and partner with third-party fintech companies to be able to have different building blocks and basically uh, build tailor-made financial solutions that work for the type of supply and demand that you have on your particular marketplace. Right. And also, of course, what maybe we didn't mention was how some of these kind of embedded finance solutions really decrease the risk of disintermediation, which, from my perspective, they increase LTV and therefore they increase CAC and accelerate growth for marketplaces. So they're a very welcome addition to the stack. Yeah, exactly. And 
perhaps also because uh, you just mentioned our customer acquisition costs actually in e-commerce uh, customer acquisition costs are much lower than uh, let's say banking insurance or real estate even transportation so it, so embedding financial services in marketplaces is a great way for fintechs to grow but also for marketplaces to grow because on average their customer acquisition costs are much lower because they already have uh, certain liquidity on the marketplace and, and just plugging an additional finan- uh, financial service improves uh, the user experience and also enables the platform to then charge a higher take rate. That's great. Uh, so so thank you so much, Manfredi, for, for this integration. Um, so one question that I was chatting with Manfredi about is also what's coming up, you know, besides fi- fintech in embedding. You know? So uh, your report are, are always point to uh, this evolution of steps, no, and uh, and now we are living the age of, of managed marketplaces, vertical marketplaces. Uh, so I would be tempted to say, what is coming up uh, next? Uh, but I'm also tempted to ask you about your upcoming uh, research. So that I guess is also going to be about a little bit of you know the evolution of managed marketplaces uh, in the next few months. So where do we want to start? Should we start maybe from? What is coming up in terms of the next report that you can you're gonna provide, or and and then maybe we can look into what do you see coming up in terms of models? Yeah, yeah. Well, I can I can start off with what research we are currently working on. Um, so we've teamed up again with Advent Ventures. We we are uh, looking in depth into B two B marketplaces, and why is that? Is because a lot of the transactions and a lot of what's happening. Uh, is offline and they often rely uh, uh, on, on, on phone, email, text, pen and paper uh, when it comes to ordering goods. And, and there are some horizontal e-commerce B2B marketplaces like Alibaba and Amazon Business that have made great strides. But overall, uh, the solutions offered in, in the B2B space are just beginning to take off. And uh, the challenge is that transactions are usually very large and usually it takes multiple steps of negotiation uh, and also there are usually complicated ways of paying for the goods and services. So all of these th- all of those reasons make it difficult for B2B marketplaces to capture uh, the transaction. However, uh, the, the emergence of plug-and-play financial uh, solutions would make payments, uh, let's say, uh, you know, better and and also, I think uh, B2B marketplaces have learned a lot in the last couple of years. And I think businesses are now embracing those solutions in order to digitize and streamline uh, their ordering process. But also, uh, I think the B2B market is huge. Uh, annual spend is around 100 trillion US dollars. So digitizing this market and means that we can see the emergence of massive B2B marketplaces in the coming years and much, much larger than what we've seen in the consumer space. So I'm really excited to really deep dive into that and understand and, and showcase what are the winning models in which industries and, and how vertical players emerge. So not horizontal like Alibaba, but how vertical B2B marketplaces emerge, what are the solutions, and also, more importantly, how financial services come into play in, in this space. Very, very interesting. Thank you. And so... I have heard you mention tons of different marketplaces from all over the world. And I wanted to ask you, like, have you seen like key differences in like the US market versus Europe versus Asia? 
Yes, the the the, the main difference uh, between Asia and the rest is that Asia is really mobile first, and uh, they actually skipped a couple of steps of digitization, and we can see there. In general, consumers are much more open to paying with mobile. They use QR codes and paying online, even on offline bazaars. Uh, so a lot of the transactions are uh, are captured uh, captured online already. And in most of the shops in China, for example, you pay with WhatsApp, and many of them they don't even accept cash. So in 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 this sense, China or, or Asia in general uh, has skipped a couple of steps. That's why they're massive uh, online marketplace already there in categories uh, that we haven't seen in Europe and US. And and also what is uh, a big trend, especially in China, is live stream shopping. So the same as having QVC in uh, in the US. Uh, so an online marketplace would, would launch a live stream. Uh, their products are being showcased. People buy them. And that's that's a massive trend in, in, in China, especially that we haven't seen replicated in US and in uh, Europe yet. So, so uh, Ivan, just a, a quick question in, in terms of uh, what do you see, uh, well, even not so quick if you want to expand more, but essentially, what do you see coming up uh, be, beyond mar- manager marketplaces and, and B2B marketplaces and fintech? What are the w- new waves that you anticipate uh, um, in terms of uh, what's coming up? Well, I'm really excited about marketplaces that make consumers, non-consumers, consumers and non-producers, producers, respectively. Uh, so th- those are marketplaces part of the creator economy. So a good example would be OutSchool or Patreon. So basically, um, you're passionate about a certain subject. You're really good at creating um, certain items like clothing or, or whatnot. And then those marketplaces enable you uh, to actually create this content and then distribute that content. So you you would not be necessarily a producer at first, but those marketplaces and platforms give you the tools uh, necessary um, and inspiration to create content that is being distributed to people that might at first not be interested in the topic or they, they were not sure whether they want to explore it, but those marketplaces attract them and um, and they consume. And I think the creator economy in general um, has a really bright future and uh, and we would see really massive companies into that segment as people really want to monetize what they're passionate about. And um, I think in, in the near future, it would be really often you could see the case when somebody is working at a, from nine to five on a certain job, but then exploring their passion and slowly building their online presence and brands and eventually just focusing on that. And we've somewhat seen that on on TikTok and Instagram, uh, but I think those platforms do not offer the certain level of monetization and interaction with the audience as we've seen uh, some new platforms uh, that have emerged. Well, this, this is very interesting. I mean, in general, the creative economy... Uh, the creator economy space, uh, it's on one hand uh, very rampant in terms of importance and attention. On the other hand, uh, it seems to me that it's also a bit, uh, I can say, how can I say, it's a bit uh, disruptive for the very nature of uh, work and the firms. And uh, in, indeed, we are 
you know, for example, we are seeing uh, analysts uh, like uh, Lee Jean, you know, that uh, formerly was working with A16Z. Now she created a, her own fund, and now she's writing all every day about. Uh, you know, worker unionizing and, uh, uh, you know, challenges to the platform economy due to the uh, worker platform frictions. So I'm curious to know if you if you feel like in the future of platforms and, and, and marketplaces, uh, there's also a wave coming up that is questioning this very nature of uh, centralized marketplaces and, uh, and uh, also venture-baked marketplaces and maybe pointing out to new models such as the ones that are powered by uh, Web3.0 and uh, crypto and to- tokens, uh, social tokens and, and whatnot. Is it something that is in the radar of the uh, um, room uh, for the coming reports and, and in general as a topic of research? Uh, well, I haven't looked into that space closely, uh, so I would only I could only uh, speculate, but. If if I look at the last 20 years, we've seen that the marketplace model in general has evolved quite a lot. Um, and even players that emerged initially started with one model, they pivoted and they changed. So I assume in the coming years, decentralization could also become a team uh, in marketplaces. There might be a new technology to enable that. Uh, however, in, in many cases, what makes marketplace successful is being able to centralize a lot of the data and be able to use that data in a smart way uh, to improve the user experience and imlo- Im- uh, improve the matching between supply and demand. So if there is a, if there is a new technology emerges, marketplace could go in that direction. But I haven't looked really closely into that space. That's definitely... Uh, something uh, I would look into. I just took a note. Uh, it's an interesting idea. Uh, so thanks. Happy to look forward to the coming report on on this. Then, um, so maybe last last bit, um, uh, Ivan. Uh, I wanted to to ask you to see if you if you have captured in the trends that you that you analyze also the impacts in potentially changing customer habits. So more than the changing, um, I would say. Uh, marketplace um, categories or new ideas for entrepreneurs that are coming up with these marketplaces solutions. For example, things such as COVID or potentially this new, you know, this new huge topic such as climate change and circular economy. Are they, are these trends impacting uh, what new expectations the, the customers have and, and therefore what new solutions and marketplaces entrepreneurs are coming up with? The answer is yes, consumer preferences are evolving. And as those evolve, marketplace adapt. Um, so last year, what happened is that when COVID started, consumers were suddenly in a position where they were only able to buy a particular item online. And what we have seen is that uh, in just a couple of months, uh, th- there was a change that didn't happen uh, the previous couple of years. In particular, Uh, In the UK and uh, in the US, we've looked at some data and we could see that online penetration for for certain industries increased uh, double digits. So obviously this helped a lot. This gave a big bump uh, to online marketplaces and uh, and more of the transaction was captured online. At the same time, people bought for the first time items and we we're still we still uh, have to see whether those habits would stick. 
I recently looked at or- online grocery orders in the US and we've seen that actually, although uh, that there has been growth and, and the, the overall um, GMV grew uh, in the US, it's not growing as fast and actually um, it's stagnating and in certain cases decreasing. So we still remain to see whether uh, the, the bump would remain and, and to what extent and whether in the future we would see a similar growth rate. Uh, with regards to sustainability, yes, it does really uh, influence how people are buying and uh, and selling. And we've seen actually that marketplaces um, that uh, facilitate buying of second case uh, clothing, for example, uh, they've raised record funding. So uh, this year alone, um, I can, uh, uh, from top of my mind, uh, from top of my head, it was uh, around 1.5 billion euro. And, and it's, it's a massive increase uh, since 2020. Uh, 2020, uh, those marketplaces raised a little bit below 400 million. Uh, so the amount has increased multiple times. And the reason is uh, consumers are more cautious of how they consume food waste marketplaces as well. Uh, food waste marketplaces also are, are, are gaining some traction, especially among consumers that, uh, that are cautious of food waste because a third of the food we we buy actually gets wasted. Uh, so uh, marketplaces that facilitate redistribution of that food in order to not get wasted are gaining some traction. And I believe going forward, uh, climate and environment, environmental impact uh, would remain a key topic and consumers would prefer to spend their money uh, in a way that they know it doesn't impact the, the environment negatively and possibly it also helps. Right, right, right. Definitely. I mean, I think uh, I think marketplaces uh, embed so much, uh, so many patterns that are potentially beneficial in terms of sustainability. So, uh, so definitely hoping, hoping so. I know, Manfred, do you have another quick point before we get to the close? Yes, slightly philosophical. Even earlier, you mentioned Patreon, and it made me wonder if. It is a marketplace, and if marketplaces are changing, and how do we define them? That's actually uh, a great question, and we have also had um, discussions internally of what exactly is a marketplace and how do you define it. Uh, just to give you a background, how we see it, so you basically could have those horizontal players like classifieds, uh, and then you know you can advertise uh, and everything on the marketplace, uh, but then. You have transactional marketplaces, full stack, uh, i-buying marketplaces. And then uh, on the top, you have e-commerce, where usually those are companies that would hold the risk on their own balance sheet. And also in that category, you also have direct consumer. So it goes from listings to, so basically where you just do, um, uh, it's a very asset light model to a very asset heavy model where you're holding it on your balance sheet. Uh, Patreon, uh, it's basically... Uh, the, 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 the reason why I would say uh, it fits in the category marketplace is uh, because you they're connecting creators with people who are willing to consume their content and uh, that would like to learn something new and connect with those creators and support them uh, by paying a membership fee. So in this sense, uh, it's connecting those two uh, categories. And what Patreon does on top of it is uh, it add certain features to make it easier for creators. So it enables creators to actually create the content and monetize it. 
similarly SaaS-enabled marketplaces, they would offer a certain uh, software feature uh, to, let's say, the supply side in order to manage inventory or, or bookings or whatnot in order to make it more attractive for them to use it and uh, easier for them to use it. So, yeah, I, w- I would say Patreon is a marketplace. Yeah, that's a great question, Manfredi, because uh, as well, myself, when I was reading your report, I often said, you know, really, this is not a marketplace, but this is one of the points that you raise in the report, you know, that uh, the definition of a marketplace is changing, you know, and that's uh, one of your iconic slides, you know, that I've been using uh, uh, so many times in presentations. So thank you so much for your work. It's so effectively, uh, like, this area is rewriting the rules of business overall. Yeah. yeah. That's it. That's it. I think uh, people, we need to start to understand that when we talk about marketplaces, it's just something that we use uh, uh, lacking a better terms to describe how digital is transforming the firm more in general. So, so I, I, totally, I totally buy this, this, this reflection. Uh, so Ivan, just uh, last bit, if you want to add uh, anything that you believe it's important for our listeners and also point them out to the fantastic work you're doing at Deal Room, where do, what should they download? What should they uh, sign, sign up for? And, and that's it. The first thing that's really important is that we send a weekly newsletter uh, focused on, on marketplaces. And if you go to dealroom.co uh, and then click on the bar uh, newsletters on top and, and scroll a little bit down, you can subscribe. You can also see the previous versions to get the flavor of the type of contents uh, we usually make. Uh, we basically highlight key deals, but also we we choose some of them and go into a little bit more detail how the market is developing, why is it relevant, etc. And the second bit that is important is that uh, we are all, we've also created a platform marketplaces.durum.co, uh, which is basically the place if you're into marketplaces. We track all the funding rounds, all startups, all marketplaces. I mean, all the funding rounds in marketplaces unicorns, exits, and, and this platform is, is powered by uh, Adivinta. So if you're into marketplaces and you want to keep track of the latest developments, the newsletter and the platform uh, should be uh, in your bookmarks. I uh, totally, totally, totally to confirm. Uh, so uh, I think we are um, getting to the end of the conversation. So Ivan, that was a great, uh, great uh, opportunity to have you here. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Simone and Manfredi. It was a real pleasure. And Manfredi, thank you for the for the complimenting questions. It was a pleasure to have you as a co-host exceptionally on the podcast. Pleasure is all mine. It was really interesting and enjoyable. And to our listener, please uh, enjoy this uh, conversation. Take some notes and uh, catch up soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bandless Conversations podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on boundless.io for our latest news and updates. There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, and connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform strategies and organizational transformations for the age of ecosystems. We also want to thank Walter Mobiliot Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.